children, we ask you please to bow and, uh, and pray with me. Father in heaven, your word, you say, is a light and a lamp. A lamp to our feet, a light to our path. So we open it with that expectation that it will be. We trust that you are faithful to your word. And therefore help us now shed light, bring light to this word and to us. So that we can really embrace that this is truth from you. Not from a man, not from a person, not from anyone other than you. And so, Father, we pray that you would bring light through your word to us, that it would guide our very steps. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. I want to read two stanzas of this psalm. Remember, this is an acrostic psalm. It's written in such a way that each stanza of this song, this poem, this psalm, um, begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so we work through 22 stanzas. Uh, Each line of each stanza begins, uh, the first word begins with um, that particular letter. I want to read verses 65 uh, through 80. So I want to read two stanzas of this psalm. So Psalm 119, verse 65. Hear the word of God. You've dealt well with your servants, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolence smear me with lies, But with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you've afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me, that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame, because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. We began this a few weeks ago, and I've deliberately jumped to the ninth and tenth um, stanza of this psalm uh, to play connect the dots here with something that we've been thinking about. The first stanzas, those first eight verses that begin with the Hebrew letter Aleph, uh, set out the theme of the psalmist, and his theme was the blessed life, which means the life of happiness. Now, our word happiness seems a little thin, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't, we just use it so flippantly, and the, the word blessed is really a better one, but it really gets at what we understand to be happy, that is content, satisfied, to be able to say about our lives, this is the life not only that I should be living, but this is also the best life for me. This is the life that I want to live, this life of God. And it's a life, the psalmist says, this blessed life is a life that's lived faithful to his 
word. Now remember, this psalmist is one who belongs to God. So this isn't a matter of being saved, not being saved. This is a matter of living it out. This is a matter of living life. And so he's saying uh, the best life, life that is blessed, life that is happy, life that is content, life that's joyful, if you will, is that life that's lived faithful, lived according to the word of God. And so... In this psalm, what we find are prayers. He begins to pray that God will enable him to know, to understand his word. He knows that to be crucial. If happiness of blessedness comes from following after the word of God, he must know it. He knows his own frailty, so he prays. He says, God, help me to know it. Make me, if you will, understand it. It's that prayer that we talked about last Sunday that we call the prayer of illumination. It isn't for new revelation. It isn't for God to tell him something that he's never told anybody before. It isn't to tell him something that isn't in the scripture. In fact, as God answers his prayer, he realizes the only way he can comprehend the answers to his prayers is to know the word of God because that's the way that God speaks to us by way of his word. And so he prays that God would answer him. He lays out his life before God, but then he also says, teach me your statutes said is, I can't understand anything about my life, about what's going on, about how I'm to live, unless you really teach me your word. So he prays that God would teach him his word. And then he dedicates himself to this word. So he says, I will meditate upon it. And meditation isn't something that we do in 20 minutes with our legs crossed in an uncomfortable fashion. Meditation is a lifelong pursuits of consideration, of thought. That's what meditation. When he says, I'm going to meditate on your statutes, we mustn't think of him spending an hour on Mondays meditating. Now, that's good. We do that. But, but for him, meditation was this lifelong pursuit. It was this lifelong consideration, thinking of the word of God, rather like Joshua who said, I will not let the words of this law depart from my mouth. In other words, it's always going to be on my thinking. It's always going to be on my lips. That, that, that's this sense of meditation. So he says, my whole life is going to be spent informed by thinking about meditating, applying, considering what God has said. And so everything gets run through this grid, if you will, of the word of God. Everything. And so he says, I'm going to meditate in your words. I'm going to store these words in my heart. The way that words get to this word gets to our heart is in fact through our minds. We're thinking beings, but it doesn't just stop at our minds as an academic pursuit, as a thoughtful pursuit, but it informs our, the very guts, if you will, of our being. So he says, I'm going to store this word in my heart. And to store means I'm going to hide it away, meaning it's valuable. Thus, I'm going to treasure it. It will be my delight. And then he moves on to say, this, is fact, this in fact is the way and the only way that a young man or any man, but a young man can keep his way pure, is by following after the very word of God. And then we come to this stanza, Dalif, it's the fourth one, who begins in verse 25 that we considered last week. And here's what I want to pull from again this week. Because what the psalmist finds himself is in, in great Difficulty, great even discouragement. He, 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 he announces or, or, or describes his situation in verse 25 like this. He says, my soul clings to the dust, meaning I have nothing to grab a hold of. You can't dust 
He can't grip dust. Does you no good to try to grip dust. And, and he says, in a sense, in another translation, I'm laid low in the dust, meaning that, that I feel as if my eyes are filled with dust so that I cannot see. My ears are filled with dust so that I cannot hear. My nostrils are filled with dust so that I cannot breathe. My, my, my throat is filled with dust so that I cannot speak. That's the sense in which this, 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 this psalmist describes the seriousness of his discouragement and of his difficulty. In the dust that is close to death, ashes to ashes, dust, dust to dust, dust. So I'm that close, if you will, to death. That's my situation. So the question then, if he's writing about happiness, if he's writing about being blessed, how can he, after describing himself like that, move from there to a place of being blessed? And he says it's only by knowing and running with God's word. That's it. That's the way, even in the midst of that circumstance, that situation. And he was in a horrible circumstance. Uh, most likely, it was that his enemies had come up against him to slander him, to defame him. Even the prince, it said, was against him in the previous standard. The, the prince was against him. And so he says, that they, and, and he says, they've almost succeeded. They've almost snuffed out my life. So how can he move from that situation where it appears as if Everyone who's important is against him and slandering. How can he move from there to a place of happiness, of blessedness? And throughout this psalm, we never get the sense that that stops. In other words, that the slander stops, that the enemy sees. And so he's going to live in the midst of that situation, blessed. So he lays out his life. He begins to pray. Notice as we talked last week, verse 26, he says, When I told of my ways, you answered me. But he says, Teach me your statutes. In other words, I can't understand anything of you, God, unless I understand your statutes. So if I'm going to understand my circumstance, my situation, know how to deal with it, then you must teach me your statutes. Verse 27, Make me understand the way of your precepts. I'll meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow, but strengthen me according to your word. Teach me graciously your laws, he says in verse 29. And then the final resolve, he says, all right, I've chosen the way of faithfulness. In other words, this is the only way I know. This is the only way to help. I've chosen the way of faithfulness to your words. I'll cling to your testimonies. I'll run in the way of your commandments. And this he can do because as he meditates on God's word, as he learns it, as God reveals this word to him, that yes, this is my word, you can bank on it, you can trust it, you can, you can, you can stake your entire destiny upon it. He says, God will enlarge my heart. God will set my heart free. That, you see, is the result of delighting in his word. He enlarges our hearts. He increases our capacity to handle life, whatever comes. So now what I want to do this week and then in two, I'll be gone a bit, but, but in my times this summer, what I want to do is this week ask the question, how is it that God answers his prayer? How is it that God answers his prayer. What, what does he tell him? What does he learn, if you will, about his situation that enables him to live blessed even in the midst of this situation? And then in a couple of subsequent sermons, I want to ask the question, how does what happened to him affect other believers? And then I want to ask the question after that, how does what happened to him affect his enemies? Let's all hear 
trust me. Uh, but we won't get to those last two uh, till later. But, but I want to take this one up. How does God teach him? What does God teach him? How does he answer him here? Now remember, please, we're in deep waters. We mustn't trivialize his pain. And anybody who talks about life as clinging to the dust is one who's in real discouragement. And we mustn't trivialize our discouragement and our pain either. Now, some of you may be just happy as a lark today, and I bless you. May your tribe increase. <laughs> but we all know that there are times in life, some of you have experienced them, when you know what this feels like. And we all know that times will come when we'll know what this feels like. Even people who follow after God. The psalmist was faithful to God. He knew God. This wasn't some, some person who was in the midst of deep sin. This was a person who, who, who knew God. And yet, here he was in this circumstance, this situation. He knew how this felt. And so we know that's how life is. We know that we live in a world that's economically can be unstable. We know that times can change quickly there. And we might find, find ourselves in deep financial straits. We, we know that we live in a political climate that can also change. And, and it can be very disappointing as to what happens even in our own country. It may be that we live in relational difficulties, and we understand that. We know the difficulties that can happen in marriage. We know the difficulties that can happen in families. We know the disappointments that can happen. We know that there are expectations that we have about, about our lives that may not be met. Some who are young have great expectations, but, but you know from hearing others talk that perhaps your expectations won't be met. How will you understand that point in your life when, when life turns in a different fashion? in a different way than what you've expected it to turn. How, how will you understand that? Well, this psalmist helps us. And what's wonderful about this particular psalm is, is this is what I call a Monday morning testimony. You know, a Monday morning quarterback is the person who analyzes the Sunday game on Monday. That's easy to do. You know the plays you should have run because you know what happened. Well, he knows, this psalmist, what happened? He knows what took place between the time of his praying and through his meditation and all of that, and he's writing about it. But what's great about it is he's inspired by God. In other words, this is from God. This isn't me writing my testimony of a situation about how I may have understood that rightly or wrongly. This is the psalmist. This is a person who's filled with the Holy Spirit in such a way, carried along by the Holy Spirit in such a way that God is communicating to us through him to say, this is true. You can bank on this. Sink down into this. This is the very word of God. This is why we pray a prayer of illumination. God, enable me to know that this is your word so that I can bank on it. Cause it to work in me in such a way by your spirit that it is a lamp to my feet that I can't see anything unless I'm seeing through this. It is a light to my path that I can't see anything unless I'm seeing through this. That God convince me, show me, this is your truth so that I can sink deep into it and make it my life. That's the blessing of this testimony, this after-the-fact, if you will, testimony. He's sharing from God what it means to go through and live in the midst of a situation described as, I'm clinging to the dust, yet I'm blessed. Now, the outline I want to use this morning, just in my own head, at least, that I want to follow, is this. First, I want to take a look at what he knows to be true about God. What he knows to be true about God. Secondly, what he learns in the midst of that, in his situation, to be true about God. 
And then thirdly, what finally he realizes is the greatest value. Now, now what's helpful is, again, we get to learn from him. This is what my wife calls doing your homework. This is, this is preparing ahead of time. This is kind of sinking it in so that when these times happen, we go back to this and we say, yeah, I already knew that. I know that. Okay, I can bank on this. So what did he know about God that was really true? What, what, what did he learn in the midst of this? And then what did he realize? What did he come to really know as the highest value? But before I get to that, it's, it's just kind of just sum it all up. It's, it comes to us in verse 71. This is what God taught him about his situation. And this outline will flow from that. Verse 71, he writes, It is good for me that I was afflicted. That's what he learned. What he learned about the whole situation that laid him low in the dust, that made him cling to the dust and all of that, is that he said it, w- it was good. It was good that I was afflicted. And I told you we're in deep waters here. He said it was good. He says, that I might learn your statutes. Now he comes to that because God was able, was faithful, to answer his prayer, to make him understand God's ways. And he says, I need, you need to understand my ways. And so once he understood God's ways, then he was able to say, it was good that I was afflicted. He didn't say what my enemies did to me was good because what his enemies did to them was slander him, which was evil, right? So that wasn't good. He wasn't calling evil good. But he's saying the outcome of this for me, to me, was good. I realize that now. God's way, by way of this affliction, was for me Good. It was to do good ultimately for to me. And the good came that I learned his statutes. We'll see the value of that. So what is it then that he knew about God that enabled him to come to that conclusion? Notice verse 68. He knew that God was good. He said, you are good and do good. He knew that God was good. There was nothing that would shake him. That knowledge, he knew ahead of time. He knew from the word of God. God had worked that in him. He said, God, you are good. I know that. And that certainly is the the testimony of the scripture. We could read hundreds, literally, of verses that speak of God's goodness. For instance, in Psalm um, chapter 25, uh, verse 8, good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 34, many of you know this, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, that has experienced the very goodness of God. Psalm 86, verse 5, the psalmist writes, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. We read together in our call to worship this morning from from Psalm 100, the hundredth as it's known, uh, for the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 106 and 107, if you want to read a psalm of the goodness of God to his people, even though they're undeserving, even though they fall away, even though they rebel against God, but still the goodness of God, read those psalms. They both begin with the same expression. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. We read from Psalm 145 responsively this morning. Verse 9, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he is made. The Lord is good. The psalmist knew that. That was, that was his operating assumption. That was his operating truth. I know that God is good. No matter what else I see, from my lips I will say, from in my head I will think, in my heart I will know that God is good. That was his sense of all of, all of life. And he had good reason to think that. 
The scripture was replete with that expression. In fact, as God introduces himself uh, to Moses in Exodus chapter 33, God says, my name is goodness. If you want to know me, then I'll give you my name. It really is goodness. In fact, the, the way that we get our English word God comes from the old Saxon. It comes from the expression, the good. It just shortens good by an O <laughs> to God. God is good. Notice Moses on one occasion when he was concerned about his own leadership and the people's following, he said to God, show me your glory. And you may remember that wonderful scene that God says, well, you can't see my glory in its fullness. Uh, so I'm going to put you in the little cleft of this rock. And as I pass by you, um, I can't show you my front side. I can only show you my backside. That's, that's the, I can only show you the backside of my glory because that's all you can take because I'm so glorious. But in that scene, Moses says, verse 18 of Exodus 33, Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. Now, when Moses said, show me your glory, he was saying, show me who you are. Glory, give me your reflection. Show me who you are. And so God says to him, well, if you want to know who I am, I'm going to give you my name. I'm going to tell you my name. And what my name is in this sense is essentially goodness. I'm going to let my goodness pass in front of you. And so when that scene happened, Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is saying, everything that I do is good for I am good. So my mercy is good. It's my goodness to you. My grace is good. It's my goodness to you who are undeserving. My mercy is my goodness to you who are in misery. My forgiveness is goodness to you who are in sin. My justice is good for those of you who rebel. Everything about me, everything that I do, from my grace to my justice, is good. J.I. Packer writes about God in a book aptly titled <laughs> Knowing God. He writes this about the goodness of God. He says, goodness in God, as in human beings, means something admirable, attractive, and praiseworthy. When the biblical writers call God good, they're thinking in general of all those moral qualities which prompt his people to call him perfect, and in particular of the generosity which moves them to call him merciful and gracious and to speak of his love. Packer goes on to write, Within the cluster of God's moral perfections, there is one in particular to which the term goodness points, the quality which God especially singled out from the whole when, proclaiming all his goodness to Moses, he spoke of himself as abundant in goodness and truth. This is the quality of generosity. Generosity means a disposition to give to others in a way which has no mercenary motive and is not limited by what the recipients deserve but consistently goes beyond it. Generosity expresses this, the simple wish that others should have what they need to make them happy. Generosity is, so to speak, the focal point of God's moral perfection. It is the quality which determines how all God's other excellency, excellencies are to be displayed. That, that sentence, 
Generosity expresses the simple wish that others should have what they need to make them happy. The psalmist knew that. Now, the psalmist would say, generosity expresses a simple wish that others should have what they need to make them blessed. That's the word he would use. To make them blessed. And so he knew that God was good. He knew, therefore, that even in the midst of this difficult situation, even in the midst of this troubling situation, even in the midst of this situation that left him discouraged so much so he was trying to cling to dust, he knew God was good. And he knew God had a disposition towards him, as an attitude towards him, that he desired God did for him to be blessed. He knew that. He clung to that. Now, when we speak of the goodness of God, we don't mean that there's some sort of standard which God meets. We don't mean that there's the standard of good, and we look at God and we say, oh, yes, God is good. No. We look at God and who he is and say, God is good. Thus, everything that flows from him is indeed good. He is good. He can be no other. The psalmist knew that. It was deep in his guts. He had meditated on that truth. He had delighted in that truth. He had stored that truth. He had treasured that truth so that when the difficulty came, he was not questioning that truth. He knew it. God is good. He experienced it. It reinforced that. But he knew God is good. And then notice about his situation, what he learned. We can take this look in um, verse 75. He says of God, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. That last expression, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Now, we oftentimes wonder, where did this come from? Did it come from Satan? Did it come from myself? Did it come... The psalmist cuts through all of that. Why? Because he knows that God is sovereign over all things. He knows that nothing can come to us except through the hand of God. He lived, if you will, knowing that God was, in some sense, a strainer of all things. That God could keep anything out. God could let anything pass. The theological term for that which happens is that God has ordained it. Sometimes when we don't like what God has ordained, we say that God has allowed it. <laughs> but the theological term is that he's ordained it. He's said, yes, this can come to pass. Now, what helped the psalmist is that he knew that the one who said this affliction can, shall come to pass was good. He knew that. Thus he knew the ultimate result of this would be good for his soul, good for his life. I wonder if we know that. There are times in the course of our lives when difficult things happen that we question the goodness of God. We really do. On the one hand, we, we see God not so much as good, but as judges, as punitive. And, and so we think that whatever's happening to us in our lives must be punishment to us. And so, so we just sort of take it and, 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 we, and we feel this, this sense of wrath of God upon us. But as believers in Christ, please understand, we, we must never think that way. The wrath of God has been taken. It isn't punishment in a punitive sense. It might be discipline, but in a training sense, 
discipline in the discipline of a loving father, of a caring one who comes to help, to know what's best and says, this is best, therefore, I will help you. That's why the author of Hebrews says that we should count all hardship as training, all hardship as discipline. When you and I think of the word discipline, we often think of spanking. <laughs> and that's all right. That's part of it, I suppose, as we spank our children. Um, but the, the, the sense of that word is training. That we discipline not in a punitive fashion, but we discipline to train, to build up, to grow up. And so that's this sense here. And Jesus dealt with this on a couple of occasions. You might remember that there was a man that his disciples came upon one day who had been born blind. Their question to Jesus, a normal one, one that we would normally ask, because this is how we think as opposed to how God thinks. They asked Jesus the question, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus, I think, scratched his head and went, nobody. This is for the glory of God. God, through his sieve, allowed this to come, ordained this to come to this man for a particular purpose, a good purpose, a purpose that would show the very glory of God. On another occasion, you might remember, there was a couple of tragedies that had taken place. One, where a group of worshipers had been killed. The scripture puts it like this, that their blood had been mingled with their sacrifice, and that by order of Pilate, the governor. And they brought that to Jesus. You can tell testing him, like, what are you going to say about this, Jesus? How good is your God now? Another situation, they said there was a tower that fell on a group of people. What, what about that? Jesus, seeing right to the heart of the matter, said, hmm, do you think those people were worse sinners than you? The sense being, they weren't worse sinners than you. If this happened because of their particular sin, then you would have been killed along with them. We often think that way. There's an earthquake in, color, in uh, California. We think, oh, those people from California, right? There's some truth. No, no. When a tornado comes through Kansas, we don't think, oh, those Kansans, do we? No, we don't think that. We think, all oh, those, oh, poor Kansans. See, that's the sense of it. So, so we need to really understand when difficulties come, especially to believers, this isn't punitive. This is, as the psalmist puts faithfulness. It was in his faithfulness. God's faithful to me. That's why I went through this. God was being faithful to me. That's why he allowed this to come. That's why he ordained this to come. It was out of his faithfulness that he ordained this to come. We have difficulties with this notion of sovereignty and goodness. You might remember that when the tsunami hit some years ago, Daniel Shore, commentator, said that if anyone would see the hand of God in this, then it must mean that God owed us an apology. The sovereign one. What he was saying is that God can't be good and sovereign if such like this happens. There was a book written a number of years ago, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? It was followed eventually by an article written by a theologian entitled, a Christian theologian entitled, Why Do Good Things Happen to Bad People <laughs> Like Us? But, but the author of that book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People, came to the conclusion that God is good but not powerful. He couldn't deal with the fact that God wasn't good as a rabbi, but he couldn't understand why difficult things happened, terrible things happened. His daughter had gone through a tragedy. Why that could happen if God was sovereign, powerful. Surely if God were powerful, then bad things wouldn't happen to presumably good people. 
There's another theology happening today called open theism, uh, which goes like this. That God is good, just not omniscient. That God is good, he just can't see into the future. That God is good, but he doesn't know the future. God can't know that which is unknowable. He knows everything that's knowable, but the future decisions of human beings are not known, can't be known, because who can know that? And therefore, bad things happen because decisions are made that bring about tragedy and difficulties and bad things, and God didn't know it. But the Bible knows none of those things. The Bible knows a God who is omniscient, who knows everything. The Bible knows only a God who is sovereign, who ordains all that comes to pass, and a God who is good. Joseph knew that God. Remember, Joseph had a horrible life, really, although it was a bit caused by his own foolishness. He had a couple of dreams that put his brothers in rather compromising position, bowing down to their younger brother, and he had the, the audacity to tell his brothers about it, which wasn't very smart. Now, they overreacted a bit, um, if you know the story. But he ended up in slavery, ended up in prison. But at the end of the day, because he was a faithful man to God and sought after God, meditating upon God's word, he knew this, that what they meant for evil, God meant for good. The operative word is meant, intention. Human beings had an intention, but God overruled that intention. Human beings had one intention. God had another intention for the same action, for the same thing. Now, God is sovereign. He surely could have stopped it from happening. He intervened in various places in Joseph's life rather miraculously, but, but he didn't intervene in, in, in that sense of getting him into that situation of slavery and then ultimately prison. But, 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 but Joseph knew that God had an intention for allowing, for ordaining that to happen, and his God's intention was good because he knew that God was good and you know that story and you realize the goodness that God brought to the family, to the nation, to the glory of God. He knew this psalmist that all that happened to him because God was being faithful. Now, to what was God being faithful? Well, God was being faithful to his own glory, to his own promises, to his own, his own goodness, his own self. But he was also being good to the psalmist because God knew that the highest and best life for this psalmist was following after God. We would put that in this kind of term, that our highest and best life is being conformed to the image of Christ. That's goodness to us. That's God's faithfulness. That's his promise. You, you know these promises, I trust. You cling to them. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And that's true. God is at work. Those who love him, God is at work working all things, everything, even those things which result in us clinging to dust, even those things, God has ordained so that he can work good for us because he's called us to a purpose. And the purpose to which he's called us is revealed in verse 29. He writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, his Son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. So that's our destiny, you see, as believers. And God is at work always to bring that about. There's no better good. There's no better life than being conformed to the image of Jesus. That's blessedness. That's 
the happy life. There are times when we use this expression, we say, God's more concerned about our holiness than our happiness. And that's only partially true. He is concerned about our holiness. But he's concerned about our holiness because he's also concerned about our happiness. Because there's no real happiness without holiness. There's no real happiness in sin. When we're not following after God, any happiness, any contentment, any joy, any satisfaction that we feel is simply bogus. It's a mirage. It's a lie. It's not real. And if it lasts, that happiness, while we're in sin, that isn't the grace of God. That's the judgment of God. He leaves in sin those who aren't his. He leaves those in sin who are content with, who are content with sin and happy in it who aren't his. His own children he disciplines, he pulls back, he afflicts, even if that's what it takes. And the psalmist knows that and he says, it was your faithfulness to me, God. It was your faithfulness to me that I was afflicted. Because before, notice in verse 67, this is what he realized. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. In other words, I realize the highest value in my life, real blessedness, it isn't what you'll read in these nonsense books about living your best life now and all that sort of thing. We won't find it there. We'll find this there. Oh. He says, my real life value to me, God is following after you. So whatever that takes, whatever that takes, then do it, God, so that I can follow. I can follow after you. And all this you see is an answer to his prayer. Verse 66, he says, teach me good judgment and knowledge. That prayer of illumination, teach me, God, your ways. This, this, this word for judgment is a, is a word for discernment. Give me discernment. Remember, Solomon prayed for that. Give me good discernment, good wisdom. In fact, that little word discernment uh, can also be translated um, taste. I want to be able to taste rightly, to have a, a palate that tastes rightly. So God, if this is sour to you, may it be sour to me. If it's sweet to you, may it be sweet to me. And so what the psalmist could taste was the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God in the midst of this difficult situation. I remember years ago, I did a wedding for a man and a woman, obviously, but the, the, the man, the, the, the groom, was, uh, uh, had been in a skiing accident. I don't know if you remember this. Honey. I was in a skiing accident, and uh, he had lost his taste. He'd broken his jaw and lost his taste. And that was sad enough, but what was sadder, at least for me personally, is I had invited him for dinner. And uh, I'd forgotten to tell Karen he couldn't taste anything. So he thought she knew, and he was making remarks like, this looks like it tastes good, uh, this chews well. And she's thinking, who is this guy? <laughs> this isn't funny, this is my, you know, so funny. But what was interesting to me is that uh, in getting to know him uh, a bit after the wedding, and, and as, 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 as he was healing, his, his, his taste came back, but it was a process. And he said it was really bizarre because in the beginning as his taste started to come back, he'd like, he'd like uh, bite into a pickle and taste peanut butter. Or it, it was all crazy. He never knew. You know, he's like he ate then in fear because he was afraid. <laughs> what is this next bite going to taste like? And I began to think that's what happens to us. We lose discernment, don't we? 
when trauma comes, when difficulties come, we lose, we lose our taste. We bite into it. And what God means for good still tastes like it's going to be judgment or bad. And he said, no, 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 no. Pray for discernment. Pray that your taste comes back. Pray that you can taste what I'm feeding you so that you'll know when you bite into this that it will be good. And that's what we're to do. That's what the psalmist that's what the psalmist learned. You might remember the prayer of this one who has a funny name, Augur, A-G-U-R, in Proverbs 30. He knew this about his life. Proverbs 30, verse 7, this man, Augur, lists this prayer out to God. He says, two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Now, this isn't a prayer for a perpetual middle class. This isn't, this isn't really about, this is really about money. It really isn't. It's about Augur's desire. His desire is that he's able to walk with God. And he knows himself so well, as we all must know ourselves, that he says, God... Please, if giving me too much will cause me to think all is well and I forget you, then don't give me too much. If if not giving me enough, if having me in poverty means that I'll become bitter and angry and discouraged and leave you, please don't put me in poverty. But God, do what must be done in my life so that I walk with you. If I could simplify this in one verse. Psalm 81.10. Preface to the verse. When Karen was in the hospital a little over a year ago for a month and I lived at the hospital with us, nobody used our house. <laughs> it was just empty. Uh, I'd come home every once in a while and take a shower, for which everyone was grateful. But, but uh, uh, mostly I, I lived in the hospital. And so while we were gone, <clears throat> a bird built a nest in our uh, front stoop about eye level. That would have never happened if people had been going out the door. The bird would have... We have other nests around the house and gutters and so forth clogging up the water. But, the, uh, but uh, this one just right there because this bird thought, oh, cool, my house. Nobody else is here. And so, so when I finally opened the front door one day, this bird almost attacked me. But what I saw in the nest were two little baby birds. And so I, I began to watch because... We weren't doing much in those days. But I began to watch. I'd stand by the, by the front door and look out the window. And, and I'd watch. And the, the bird would come, as you do with these unappetizing, at least to me, worms. And, uh, and, and, and hovering around the nest, as the bird would come close, you know what would happen. These birds would just put their heads up. And all of a sudden, all I could see was mouth. I couldn't see head at all. Just mouth. And there's a verse, Psalm 8110. It said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So you get the context. The next line is, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. What did those baby birds know? They knew they were utterly dependent upon their mom and this worm. And they could do absolutely nothing to live other than open their mouths wide before their mom and this worm. And God is saying, that is always your posture towards me. Not only that, he's saying, that's the only lesson I ever teach. 
dependence. I only teach that. Now I'll be teaching that till the day you die. In every circumstance, in everything I ordain, if you want to know my thoughts, if you want to know my ways, know this, that whatever happens to you comes from me because I am good. It comes from me because I am faithful to you and I'm bringing good to you. The good I'm going to bring to you is that you be conformed to my son. And you know what? The, the one characteristic of my son is that he was utterly dependent upon me and he looked to me always to glorify me, to reflect me. And so that's it. We're to live with our mouths, our mouths open. And so we pray this prayer of illumination with our mouths open. God, teach me, help me. We pray this prayer of illumination. God, God, enlarge my heart as I meditate upon your word. That's what I need. And I come to your word because I'm dependent upon it because you have the only wisdom for my life. I can only live your way. There is no real life without this. And so teach me. And though it's no surprise that the Apostle James, as he writes of suffering, caps it with this. He says, if you're confused, ask God for wisdom. Now that little sentence is abused, especially by students all the time, usually during finals week. What you're praying is, God, give me answers to the test questions. And God does, and he gives you wisdom, and he says, you should have studied. (laughs) And the wisdom of God, you see, is that When you're going through various trials, count it joy. That's the wisdom that you'll get. You see, when you go through difficulties, and James says, oh, by the way, you can pray for wisdom, but I just gave it to you (laughs) in the preceding verses. Because the wisdom that you'll get is the wisdom that comes from meditating, lifelong consideration of the word of God. Meditate upon the word of God. And what you'll find when you go through difficulties, the wisdom of God is joy is coming. Count to joy. And the reason is because this is for your good. And the reason it's for your good is because I'm good and I'm faithful to you and I'm conforming you to the image of Christ. You can bank on that. Two final words quickly. One quote from C.S. Lewis. Lewis, as you know, uh, you may know, uh, lost his wife. She died. He had been married to her long. It was an interesting relationship, but, but she died. And during her, her um, illness, uh, a friend of Lewis's, who was an Anglican priest, uh, came and held a healing service, really, for lack of a better term, for uh, Mrs. Lewis. She eventually died. A couple of years later, this priest's wife contracted cancer. He writes Lewis and asks Lewis to pray for him. Lewis responds like this. He says, we're not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. He says, we're not doubting that. We know that God will do the best for us. However, we're wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. That's wisdom. See, that's the fear very often. We enter into these times of difficulty. We, 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 we have this sense, because we're believers and if we followed Christ at all, we, we know, we know what the scripture says, the good will come. And all of that... But what takes our breath away as we begin to think at the beginning of this, how painful is the best going to be? I remember I had a basketball coach when I was in high school who, was, who loved us and he was a good coach and all that. And we always worried when he began to tell us that he cared for us so much that he would do whatever it took to make us a good team. Because <laughs> we knew what was coming were things that we called in those days gut drills call them suicides on other occasions, but uh, many of us uh, wasted uh, lunch money on those uh, because afterwards we, well, we shouldn't have had lunch. 
But that's the sense. We wonder how painful is the best going to be? And God says, trust me. I'll enlarge your heart. Meditate on my word. I'll increase your capacity. Meditate on my word. I'll set your heart free. Last point. I have a book in my library which I have not read. Uh, I read a previous book by this author and didn't like it. But then he came out with another book and I liked the title. So I bought it, but I don't want to read the book because I'm afraid of how he'll deal with it. But here's the title of the book. It's a great title. It'll stick with you. The title is Don't Waste Your Sorrows. Don't waste your sorrows. Why? Well, here's how I would answer that if I were reading the book. Don't waste your sorrows because God is good. Don't waste your sorrows because God is faithful to you. And in his goodness, his faithfulness is that in everything, because he's sovereign over everything, everything that ordains to come into your life is for your good. So don't waste it. Don't waste it in bitterness and anger and frustration and depression and all that. Don't waste it. Trust him. Now you may have apprehension, wondering how painful is the best going to be. Yes, I know. I know that. But don't waste the sorrow. Embrace God in the sorrow. He'll enlarge your heart. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us, that we would know this. It would not only ring true this morning, but it would ring true when we're in difficulty. So please, I pray, help us. I pray especially this morning for Kim and Christy Hinkle as they grieve the death of Christy's dad rather surprisingly this week. Be with them, Father. May they know your faithfulness. Thank you for the faith of Christy's father. And and we pray that that family will know blessing in the midst of this difficult time. For Mark Brown and the death of his grandmother, again, a surprising circumstance. But Father, be with Mark and Brenda and their family. Even as Mark shares at the funeral, Father, be with them, God. And I pray they would know your blessing in the midst of that. Father, we rejoice knowing, experiencing great blessing yesterday as Dave Upchurch and Jerry were married. Father, we're just uh, thrilled and give you praise for bringing them together. And uh, we pray your deep blessing upon their life. And Father, we thank you for the ministry of the Five Loaves House. We thank you for the faithful service of those who uh, have been involved. And we pray, God, for those who who live there, that um, they would know your blessing, even as they see others follow after you and then themselves, we pray, follow after you. God, we desire to know your goodness to us. Help us to see it in every circumstance to give you praise, to glorify you, and to know your blessing. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.